Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Morden. And we have a really interesting discussion today that ties in nicely with our last episode that was with Dr. Eva Marinova. Yeah, it's been fun doing these two right in a row because like you said, Tim, they really do go well together. I, for one, really enjoyed this episode and could have talked to Marianne, our guest today, for just hours because I think it's so fascinating to think about the theory and the science behind how we teach both horse and rider and the horse rider dyad together. And you and I just finished sort of reminiscing about how our early days of introduction to horses went and what we see a lot today and how that has broad impacts on the sport. And so I think there's sort of an endless impact that the work of someone like Marianne and having conversations like the one we have today coming up for you, I think there's just endless impact that it can have both in terms of just the development of riders of human beings, of horses, of all levels, and of the sport that we all love. Definitely. So Marianne Davies, her coaching experience includes more than 25 years of working in sports, academic, and corporate environments. She's a coach developer, coach educator, assessor, IQA, and national trainer. She's currently working as a senior coach developer for UK Coaching. And before working there, she spent eight years in the role of coaching manager for a national governing body. And before that was responsible for participation development, community, and inclusion. In her spare time, Marianne has always been a keen equestrian and still has two horses. She has always combined practical coaching work with academia and a passion for research. Marianne is currently doing a part-time PhD in skill acquisition in equine sports based at Sheffield Hallam University under the supervision of Dr. Keith Davids, who we had on the Sport Horse series years ago. Hi, Marianne. It's great to have you join us on our Sport Horse podcast. Thank you so much, both of you, for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here and I'm very excited for our conversation. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I this is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a while and it, it aligns perfectly with one of my passions for sure. So to kick it off, a few years ago, we had Keith Davids give a talk for our Sport Horse series on coaching, and he spoke a bit about constraints-led approach to learning. But for those who haven't heard about this, can you describe what it means and go into a bit more detail? Sure. I'm going to try not to go into too much of the theory initially. So we'll start with what it is and then kind of what underpins it. And please do shout and stop me and ask me to explain (laughs) if it sounds like word salad at any point. So essentially, a constraints-led approach is a way of designing practice. So it's linked with a theory. And it's a way of designing practice that recognizes that the way in which we learn and the way in which we move and make decisions is not just insight. It's not just an individual. And it's not just the environment and not just the task, but it's an interaction of all of those things. The language of constraints, it comes from mathematics. So it's probably doesn't mean what people think it is. It's almost just something that influences you. So for example, a constraint for someone as a rider might be, I've got very short legs. That's an individual constraint. So that doesn't stop them doing things, but it just changes the opportunities they have. It changes what they can do. Some constraints might be task constraints and some constraints will be environmental. So that might be weather, surfaces, all sorts of things like that, you know, people watching, all sorts of things. And it tries to keep the individual, the task, and the environment all connected instead of separating them out. So one of the things that we do, and that's really important, is we design 
tasks and learning environments. So you design a puzzle for the learner, that whether that's a horse, a human, or a dyad, to solve instead of practicing answers. So you're not practicing doing something correctly. You create a task and then watch and see what they do. How do they solve it? And then as a coach, you might start to change other things to see what happens. But we can go into, a, would it help if I gave you maybe a bit of an example? Yeah, an example would be perfect. So we stay with mounting. So you want to teach somebody how to get on their horse. There are a number of things that we would consider constraints. So one of them, like you say, would be maybe the height of the rider and the height compared to the height of the horse. The length of the stirrups are going to have an impact, whether the horse stands still for them or will come to the mounting block, how good their balance is, well, postural stability, whether they've got flexibility to get the leg over and they can still stay in balance. So there's lots of things, you know, so you can tell somebody how to do it, but actually there's a whole lot of other stuff that's going to influence it. And if you're going to use a constraints-led approach when you're thinking about coaching or you're thinking about supporting somebody to do that, you want to find out what they can do and what they can't. And we talk about it like a challenge point. So where is that point where they're just coming out of what they're able to do? So it's challenging them and they're going to be learning, but not too difficult that they can't do it. And then we might adjust things like height to stirrup. Do you have a mounting block? If it's somebody who's incredibly experienced, for example, somebody who does vaulting, then their mounting might be that they're running alongside a galloping horse and they're, or cantering horse, sorry, and they're going to vault onto them. And then we've got so many things in between. We think if somebody mounting a horse, how skillful do they need to be? And that will be related to what they need to be able to do. So if they're going to go out like hacking, they might have to be able to get up off the ground with a tractor going past the, you know, mm-hmm. I've just gone past and stuff like that. But if they're doing dressage only in arena, then they may only need to be able to get up from a mounting block where they've got time to adjust their stirrups. That would be an example. So we think about all those different things, you know, what's going on in the task, the environment, the organism. Now, the interesting bit with equestrian sports, and one of the things I'm exploring is that organism now is actually two. It's what we would call a dyad, but a complex adaptive system, and they're influencing each other. So what the horse does influences the rider, and what the rider does influences the horse. Then you can think a little bit differently about the way you adapt stuff. But the theory that sits behind it is a theory that is for all organisms. This is how all organisms, all animals, including humans, learn to adapt to their environments, you know, their ecological niches. So now for the first time, we have one theory that we can use to help us help horses and riders learn together. Awesome. I think that was a really nice overview. And I'm going to put one idea to you that I was just thinking about as you speak. So, and you talked a little bit, like you use the constraint of maybe a rider with shorter legs and and that challenges them, right, to interact with the horse. What about on the other side? So I think, especially in today's era, and when you link it back a little bit to sometimes the perception that you need to have complete control over your horse, like we have these really strong bits now, right? Or if you are a rider who's, because the actual like force needed to provide input to the horse is quite minor. But if you have a rider that's very, very strong and can like quote unquote muscle a horse into doing what they want, how does that fit into the picture? Does it almost make it more challenging when you start introducing stuff that overrides that interaction? Ooh, so yeah, this is a fascinating question. <laughs> and again, stop me if stop me if I go down too many rabbit holes. So when we talk about constraints, the environmental constraints would also include social cultural. So we'll come back to that in a minute, especially as equestrian sports are thousands and thousands of years old and developmental. So the what happens to a rider as they they grow, and I promise you that I hope this will be relevant. So if we take a quite an extreme, young riders go to a riding school. 
some of the work of like Dr. Sue Dyson would suggest that many of those ponies are in pain or they're shut down or they've got learned helplessness and so they're not big moving. They are very predictable. They're probably not very comfortable. And their behavior, instead of somebody saying to this child who loves horses, oh, I'm really sorry, you know, this horse is, it isn't lazy, it's in agony or it's in pain. This horse isn't grumpy, it's in pain, whatever. We don't say that. We, we talk about them being naughty, lazy, et cetera. And then, and again, this is, I'm, I'm talking, this is an extreme. Let's follow this as a thought experiment. What that child then learns is the horse is not doing what I wanted to do, therefore I need to make it in some way. You know, we still hear coaches and parents shouting, hit it, <laughs> as they go, mm -hmm. kick, kick, whatever as they're going around. As they start riding more horses and ponies, for some of them, they enter into the, I'm a talented rider, I'm a skilled rider, because I can stay on naughty ponies, ponies that are bucking. So I just want you to think about what that kind of narrative then that weaves through to an adult that then will influence how they perceive what a horse is doing and why they need to overconstrain them. So the key bit about a constraints-led approach is that we're not overconstraining. It's about constraining to afford the exploration of a new solution, a different solution. So we use constraints to try and encourage the horse or the rider to find another solution. And it might be very close. It might be similar if you're, especially if you're calibrating and you're just trying to tweak, but it might actually be completely different. If somebody, for example, you think someone's got some really poor technique that's ingrained, I really want to disrupt that and get them to find a completely different solution so that they're not going to keep doing the same thing. These constraints are influenced by lots of things, but a lot of it is influenced by the sort of social cultural belief systems and the narratives that have been passed down, which are more sort of global. And then the local constraints is like the horse that's in front of you and sometimes what your coach is telling you to do. Most of my poor experiences with horses is when I've got a coach telling me I have to make my horse do something that my horse really doesn't want to do. I have done that in the past. If we go back to mounting, I teach all of my horses to sidle over to me. So if I stand somewhere and click my fingers, they know that means I want to get on and they organize themselves to get to into a position where I can get on them. Now we're working as a partnership. It's really easy to get on horse that's trying to help you. Yeah, that's all really fascinating. And I, I think it's also a nice segue into the, your 2023 paper that was published in the International Journal of Sport Science and Coaching, where you do a really nice job of highlighting the theoretical framework that you've been already sort of diving into, but for how we traditionally have trained horses. And a lot of the conversations we have here on the podcast, we talk a lot about the way things have been done for years and years and people not really understanding why, but just because that's how it's been done. And it's obviously an industry that's pretty steeped in tradition. And what we often try and do is say, okay, well, let's understand the science and either understand why we're doing it this way or why we should maybe make a change. So with that in mind, can you describe a little bit more the main differences between this approach and the ecological dynamics approach and maybe provide some examples? Yes, yeah, certainly. And a great question. And, you know, I think it's really important to start with saying that this is not an individual and it's not about blame. It's like we've learned a lot over the thousands of years that we've been riding and, and working with horses and we're learning all the time. And as we learn, then we kind of integrate that into our knowledge. So I know that people 
do the very best by their horses. They love their horses and whatever they're doing, they're usually doing with very best intentions. So I think it's a really good place to start there and recognize the historical background. So essentially, actually I'll start the other way around. So historically, and again, if we think about how old horses are, there was very much a notion of horses are given to us by God, like all the other animals we do as we wish. They're not sentient. That influences, if not explicitly, then we have this sort of Cartesian linear science, mechanistic science, again, which is there is a way to do something. And that influences, it's like the world is a clock rather than this complex adaptive system like we now understand in things like looking after our environments and how complex societies are and things like that. And that's actually not very old. I think it's 1961 that Lorenz, who was researching weather forecasting, did his famous accident in his experiments where he went back to rerun a section that he'd run on an algorithm he'd created to try and follow weather patterns when you put basic stuff in. And what he did was he rounded it, again, accidentally, he rounded it down from six decimal points to three, restarted it to go and have a look at the same section. And it just only stayed the same for a short period of time and then changed. So that's 1961. And this is where we get things like the butterfly effect. You know, like we understand this system is actually interacting in complex ways that are nonlinear. And small, you know, initial conditions can have a dramatic effect on where they end up with. And everybody who's got a horse knows that they're never the same twice, are they? You know, like we were talking beforehand, you know, if my horse has been inside for rather a long time, she comes out all, let me out, boing, you know. (laughs) So this is around, we're sort of exploring nonlinearity. So it's dynamical systems here in complex systems that constraints-led approach is embedded within. And also because of that, we don't have the hierarchy. It's not anthropocentric, so it's not centered around the way humans do. It switches so that we recognize the horse as being an equal for the horse organism within this interaction. So now we bring the sentience of the horse into this relationship. We're kind of like, we've got two species colliding at some point and okay, we are, we do overconstrain them a lot, but from the horse's perspective, their lived experience is valid and they it's probably the wrong word to use actually but they have what we call an umwelt which is their experience of the world and in the wild they would be making all their own decisions they've evolved to have agency and autonomy and when we give them that i think people are scared because they're kind of told well you know they're dangerous if you let them do whatever they want but actually horses are very very they want to connect they want to synchronize it's very much in their nature. So that's the key difference. We start to, it's like, a, people would call it a post-humanist. It's like, okay, can we centralize? This is a theory that allows us to look at the horse and rider together. Horses are different with different riders. Riders will behave differently with different horses. Let's look at them as a single, you know, when they're together, let's view them as a relationship. It's about relationships. Really good point. And I think it circles back to then starting to think just very differently about how we actually train horses, right? Like got you know, just how I was brought up around horses. And I think mostly in North America, this is what you see. It's very much so like the the saying perfect practice makes perfect, right? And whatever the exercise is, you set it up. So that's what you're going to school in the day. So if it's jumping, it may be gymnastic or whatever, with the idea being that you like the first time through, like the horse is going to figure it out and problem solve. Then you just kind of keep doing it, keep doing it and keep doing it until like you're happy with the result. And that's the end of your practice, right? Versus And I think it becomes a lot more fun if you view it more as you're constantly 
predicts not the right word, but you're constantly trying to influence that interaction between the horse and the rider. And like, what small tweaks do you make every day in training? And it, it reminds me of a saying I heard a track and field coach say. He was talking about designing training and trying to make correct biomechanical faults in his athletes as they run down the track. And he said, you're constantly just tweaking small things and like giving like small different cues until you find what unlocks how that athlete actually wants to move. And then once you've got that, you're good. And so then I, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think training almost more becomes a constantly playing around with the environment and the constraints so that that dyad explores. And then when it finally makes sense to them mechanically, then it probably becomes like a new movement and then you're good to progress in training or to reinforce or whatever. Is that? Ooh, close. <laughs> I've got it. So a couple of things in there though. So this, I'm going to push back against the idea of perfect biomechanics, or if there are perfect biomechanics that we as a coach would know what they are for some, you know, for any human with a different shaped body to us, or even for ourselves, actually, never mind any other human that's got a slightly different shaped body and has had different experience. And we're not horses. So how do we, you know, like how can we know what it feels like for a horse when it's moving? So we have a lot of degrees of freedom in our movement in our biomechanical system or in neurobiomechanical system. And I can't remember the quotes and I could probably guess it for you if you want to put them in the show notes, but it's something, it's like more than the stars in the galaxy. So this is because of our joint angles and all sorts of other things like this. One of the parts of this theory is that we have a lot of what we call degeneracy, which means we have a heap of different ways to do the same thing in our body. We can still produce an outcome. You know, you could still pick a mug up or a beer glass up, even if you start in a different place. You know, you've got an almost unlimited way of being able to do that. Then we've got the horse and the horse's mechanics, but the mechanics are only a part of it. So a key bit of this is that it's, again, because it's the relationship between the individual, the environment and what they're doing, the perceptual information and the intention will also influence the biomechanics. So a really good example would be something called time to contact, which I talked about in that paper. So where do you take off? Where, you know, like, or where does somebody break if they're in a car and they don't want to collide with something or how do you catch a ball or duck if you don't want to be hit by something so this is all time to contact and actually a lot of that is picked up through changes in basically the rate of change of an image on the retina that doesn't need to get that complex but it's constantly changing and if we think about a horse jumping it's not just a place it's also the orientation of that horse's body in order to be able to take off and that they have perceived what the problem is, you know, if they read the jump, for example. So when we do this practice, yes, we're trying to get biomechanical efficiency, but we want a bandwidth because they might end up slipping or tripping and they need to be able to get back to full power. But we get that through, again, constant problem solving. And I guess probably the most important thing. So equestrians are very good at using constraints, but we traditionally constrain to constrain because we can't talk to horses. So we anything like tie down, big bits, stuff like that, that's constraining the horse's movement. When we talk about the biomechanics, the bits that are really important is if they're going to put power through a neurobiological system, so from the horse's hind legs up through its spine, et cetera, so that it can explode off the ground to jump, then that system needs to be able to it needs to be able to tolerate the power going through that kinetic chain. Please stop me if I'm not making sense, which is why people go, oh, we don't want kinks in it and we don't want this. But of course you don't, because that's going to be really problematic. You also need to be able to dissipate. So they need to be able to land and they need to be able to dissipate the energy, usually through the head and neck, which again is why it would be important why the head and neck's free to move, to dissipate that energy. The problem we have when we start to think that we can fix that 
is we don't really know what's going on and we've restricted it. I would challenge any human being to, I don't know, maybe try and do goalkeeping. So stand in front of a goal and throw yourself on the ground the way a goalkeeper does because your body's going to go, no, because you can't, dis, you know, you can't land it. You can't dissipate that power. So we need to allow those systems to learn to, to coordinate themselves instead of a coach trying to error correct them into what they think is correct it's going to end up looking probably the same because the coach does understand what it kind of needs to look like in the end, but the way to get there is different. There isn't a wrong way to move. We don't want to keep saying you're wrong. And we did this with a horse. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. You know, that whole training session, we're correcting a horse or trying to change its movement rather than, and I don't mean don't let them, you know, don't let them go out of balance and things, but there's a beautiful video at the moment going around of somebody jumping a 130 horse with a horse with no bridle at all. It's gorgeous. It's stunning to see the way the horse organizes itself and shortens and the way it uses the head and neck to rebalance afterwards, you know, because it's able to do that. So it's about helping the body to develop good coordination, including being able to get back from not being in the right place, get out of trouble, rather than trying to just practice what we think is technically correct over and over again. And the other little bit of that is the way our brains work and our systems, if we do the same thing over and over again, our brain kind of goes like, oh, this is really boring. So we know that it might look good at the end of the session, but they're not actually learning. When, when we go back to retention and transfer, it's not good. Whereas if it was a bit messy and they were problem solving, when you come back, usually you have actually an increase in skill instead of skill fade. Yeah, completely agree. And yeah, like you mentioned, like degrees of freedom, like Bernstein's whole yeah. problems there, right? And our like whole theory about that. And you brought up, yeah, coaches trying to constrain movement. It's a massive industry here in North America, the whole equitation industry. And like in our, like the hunter jumper world, you have the equitations as well, where every single rider needs to ride like the textbooks say, right? And it, and it comes back exactly to that. It's not so much how the body moves it's really just the inputs and the relationships that they are providing with the horse and do you see that over in the uk as well with like this equitation like teaching this quote-unquote perfect posture and then it for the majority of riders it probably hurts them more than it actually helps right yeah definitely and when we look at you mentioned bernstein he talks about the fact that actually becoming skillful is releasing degrees of freedom so that means there's more movement and more movement variability in really high skilled performance and then you see lots of beginner riders and they're like completely rigid so they've again reduced all the degrees of freedom makes them horrible passengers for the horse because they're going to be banging against them you know we talked about not being able to dissipate horses through the body but also they're not connected and they're, they're not picking up so haptic information part of what we would call feel it is touch and pressure and that's our connection that's really really it's a very riding is probably the most intimate a sport that's two sentient beings really closely coupled physically. And so we're picking up this touch and pressure, haptic information from each other. It's not just a question of being this correct position because it needs to be constantly adapting and co-adapting with the horse. And then, you know, if you think about, we use maybe the, some of this more behaviorist, I'm going to use this cue and it means that. And that helps us have a language with horses, which is massively important because otherwise they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. We're asking them to do something quite unnatural. But very quickly that becomes 
tends to not be needed because the horse is picking up more subtle movement from the rider. And if and anyone who's ridden at a high level or who's ridden a horse they've had for a long time knows they don't have to give an aid anymore. You know, I think canter, my horse will canter. Or it says no, you know, I don't have to do this really overt aid because our relationship becomes like a relationship with another person. You know, it becomes more and more and more and more subtle. And if you look at them, the highest skilled horses and riders, you would say they're not biomechanically correct. Shutterstock didn't have good technique, supposedly, over a jump, but he just jumped higher than everyone else. You know, that worked for his individual constraints and the constraints of him and his rider. So one of the problems we've got is that when we do that, I think we actually stop people from becoming skillful. We think we have to homogenize them first, make them all exactly the same. And then the ones that can do that, then they'll become skillful. But actually we're stopping so many people becoming skillful because we're trying to fit them into being exact replicas. And there are multiple ways to ride well. And there are lots of riders at the top that you would watch and say they wouldn't be classed as having perfect technique and the perfect posture. They're the top in the world, many of them. There's lots of variability. I bet most people could watch a black and white, or you know, when they do the little, they put the little lights yeah, yeah. on a horse and rider, and they would be able to tell you who it was because they move completely yeah. differently. <laughs> yeah. I will just give one sort of side plug. I think that when the equitation is used well, and there's a lot of trainers out there that do it, it instills strong. It helps young riders develop a strong position and start to solve complex challenges that are placed throughout a course with the level being, you know, not gigantic jumps where they're being forced to solve those problems. And I think it does help build some confidence also in young riders. So I think yeah, when it's used well, I think it's a really good tool. But I've also, because it's something that I'm, I've been fairly close to throughout my own riding experience, I can't tell you how many times I also hear trainers start to say like, stop worrying about how you look because they're trying to transition the rider from years and years of being in in the ring, thinking about that textbook position and less about effectiveness and how they're relating to their horse. So yeah, just a (laughs) Definitely. No. And it's so important actually, because this isn't about abandoning everything. And if you're going to change things, do a tiny little bit, you know, just explore something a little bit. So all the things that I did when I learned to ride were brilliant, like riding with no hands or having to put my hands in the air and then down the side. Now, those get me to start to have a really good posture because I'm having to constantly adjust my postural stability. So there are ways to train it rather than just thinking I've got to sit in a way that looks correct. And that's a brilliant example. I mean, we used to reach down and touch our toes. We used yep. to do all sorts yeah. of stuff in a lunch. So there are really good ways to do things because it is massively important, but that's a different way to get there than somebody give you instructions or put your shoulders back a bit more. No, lift your head, you know, like, no, let's not do that. Let's try and find a way to get their bodies to explore and to become stronger and become better balanced and have better core stability. Good shout. <laughs> no, no, I, a really good point and, and bringing us back to the topic. And I have a million questions, honestly, about approaches to young horses and to young riders and sort of moving away from the one size fits all approach that we were just discussing. So I'll just choose one because I'm in the interest of time. But yeah, I think I think we talk a lot in equestrian sports about feeling. The riders, they say we, they have feeling, they sort of do these things Naturally, they make the adjustments based on what the cues they're getting from their horse and they have a good, we call it, they have intuition for how they need to communicate back on whatever given horse they're on on whatever given day. 
based on the constraints that they're facing. And I, and I wonder if you have some insight into good ways to teach that, to, to teach feeling, which we always say is something that you can't teach, but based on your research and our discussion so far, and even what you just said about teaching position in a different way. Yeah. I wonder if you have some insights or suggestion into that. Yeah. What a great question. I will give you where my thoughts are on this okay. and, and how I think about it. And, and yeah, and I have been, I was always taught people naturally have feeling or they don't. And you can't teach feel is the other thing I often hear. But I think feel for a horse would be the same as surfing or paddling or, or some of these other sports, except with a horse, again, it's a relationship as well. So I would describe it as becoming highly attuned to or perceptive to the horse. So both to its movement and to its mood, its affect, how it's feeling. And we do that through interaction. And I think when you look at people who have great feel, they've ridden as kids where they've been allowed to just rag around on a pony without somebody telling them that they're doing it wrong or they should be sitting like this. So the focus isn't on them, it's on their pony and on that real interaction. I think the kids, most people who have questions, love their horses, love their ponies. They are connected to it. So they become more and more acutely aware of what's going on with their horse, whether it's underneath them or, you know, or if they're on the ground, whether it's next to them. And they're able to then pick up that information, that feel, whether it's haptic or it's riders where in my just talked about things like happy with the ears. They could just tell a slight change in the horse's ears and the like, and then they could feel the horse straightening up underneath it. Then you go, oh, he's going to brace, you know, so I know something's changing. Now, the more we overconstrain a horse, the less it can communicate. So we can't get feel. And the more we're focusing somewhere else, the less we're focusing on the horse. So yeah, this is building up a really good relationship with the horse and finding activities that you can do with regardless of the level of the rider. People talk about things like passenger lessons. Yeah, just stay on the horse and feel what it's like underneath it. Having lunging lessons so you're not having to try and control and balance. Loads of things like that to help being aware of which leg is on the ground. Again, so you can give good cues and good timing. I would say that feel is is being tightly attuned to your horse. The other thing that really helps is riding lots of different horses because you can feel that they're different and you have to, you know, you find and get the horse's rhythm and get feel for how they move and how they move you and, and how they respond. So be a student of your horse. <laughs> that's a perfect, that's where I, I thought that was going to go, right? Like, I think you look at the people who have a lot of success in the industry across disciplines and I'd say like the one common denominator, just incredibly usually curious people, right? Like I find that like those like top, top people who are going to the Olympics or like ranked in the top 10 in the world, like if you talk to them, even if it's something that's not really their thing, usually there's a lot of curiosity there. And I think it transfers over to the horse, whether it's conscious or subconscious, like they sit on that horse. And I think they're genuinely curious. If I make this small change, like what's happening beneath me and they're very mentally always turned on. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really just cool to see. Yeah, and you're right. And they pick up things much earlier. So they're making tiny adjustments and tiny, like again, somebody skilled in any other sport. It's that, not that they're not making any. It's just that they're so quick and they're at such a level that we don't, we can't see it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I think a little bit of the challenge with these podcasts is that they could go on for forever. I, I feel like if we don't do you justice to just have this short chat, but I know uh, just in the interest of time, we should move on. And it, it just means we're going to have you back in the future at some point and, and bug you some more. That last question we'll ask, can we ask all our guests, if you could speak directly to a horse and they could understand you, what would you want to tell that horse? 
Oh, I forgot you're going to ask me this. You know, when I heard you ask that before and when I saw it, my first response was actually to feel quite emotional. And I still do thinking, God, what an amazing thing to be able to do. Do you know what? I think I'd say sorry. (laughs) I'm really trying. I'm really trying. But yeah, I just want to be able to say to them that I'm so sorry for all the dumb things I've done and I'm really trying to be a good partner and I'm really trying to understand you. I think I'd have to say that first before I thought about anything else to say. (laughs) I think that's definitely a fair point. I I know a few other guests have have had that feeling as well, just because like at the end of the day, it is just incredible what they do give us. Right. Like it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an animal person, but I, I think I don't give nearly as much to like a a cat or a dog as I could. Right. Versus like a horse with a gift to us is just essentially blind faith a lot of time to, to just trust us and and we'll take care of them. So I think that's a really, really good point. Yeah. I'm sorry. And I'm trying. I'm really trying. I mean, (laughs) if anybody, any horse person is listening to this now and can't relate to how many times they've apologized to their horse. Very relatable. I love it. Uh, so yeah with that we'll wrap it up thanks so much marianne we really really appreciate it uh absolutely fascinating and i'm already writing down questions for for the next time we can have you back thank you so much for having me thank you and i know it's some of it's a little bit of a bends your brain a bit but hopefully it's exciting and people will feel interested to explore some more well that was a really nice conversation with marianne we were a little bit constrained by time, but we made it work. So that's my first joke of the year. Hope everyone appreciated it. And I'd just like to shout out to the individuals who we had the opportunity to meet over the last few days in Florida who came up and said they'd watched the podcast or listened to the podcast and they were enjoying it. So that joke was for you. But yeah, this was a really enjoyable conversation. We truly did not have enough time to discuss everything that Marianne knows. She's got such an incredible career behind her still many more years of really impactful work that she's going to do ahead she's currently working on her phd and writing up some papers and we're really really looking forward to all of that coming out but it really is a cool topic because it's it's an entire mentality shift with the sport and as we continue to modernize and as things continue to change there's more than more and more questions about the, the whole social license aspect. I think this is the approach that we have to move forward with. And I also think like for the more modern horse that has a bit more blood, especially in jumping, for example, it's an approach where I think those horses will respond better to this type of training. Yeah, absolutely. Just to follow up on Tim's clever joke there. Oh God, it's a tough act to follow. I'll admit I actually liked that one. It was good. It was good. I'm not going to go as far as to say it was good, but I'll say it didn't kill me. I liked it. It's so much that made me lose my train of thought. I really did enjoy today's episode. There's just endless thoughts going in my head right now about the reverberations and impacts and, and the need for these kinds of conversations and understanding. And so I am grateful to Marianne, grateful, like you said, to everybody who came out these last this last week in, in Wellington and Ocala. And yeah, looking forward to to many thoughtful and inspiring conversations like the one today and like many of the ones that we had this last week in Ocala and Wellington. So with that, that's a wrap for today's episode. You can find our show notes at our website, www.sporthorsepodcast.com. Please, if you don't mind, go and give us a follow on whatever podcast app you're currently listening to this episode on. That'll make sure that you never miss an episode. 
it also helps us get an idea of who's listening and where and, and how we can find you guys to learn more about what you want to hear. So we're coming up with more episode ideas that you'll continue to love. So do that. You can also follow us at Sport Horse Series on Instagram and Facebook. And I would love if any of you had the interest in learning a little bit more about Ignite, our parent company, and all the other educational opportunities that we're starting to produce, such as in-person events like we just hosted, online content, video format that gets a little bit deeper into some of the topics that we touch on in these podcast episodes, check out our new website. It's www.igniteforequineathletes.com. That's Ignite, I-G-N-I-T-E, for F-O-R, equineathletes.com. I know it's a mouthful, but you'll remember it soon enough if I keep telling you over and over again. Thanks again for listening. And here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy.